The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hi, I'm Rich Vogel. Hi, and I'm Adam Doan. We're both board-certified neurophysiologists from just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And we're also co-chairs of the NAS section on intraoperative neurophysiological monitoring. This podcast series is about neural monitoring and covers a range of educational topics aimed at optimizing patient care, decreasing costs, and maximizing OR efficiency. Today we're going to talk about anesthetic recommendations for neural monitoring in spine surgery. This topic is so critical because it literally makes or breaks neural monitoring's ability to acquire monitorable baseline signals and follow them consistently and accurately throughout the surgery. In fact, Suboptimal anesthesia regimens are probably responsible for more false alarms and altered or aborted surgeries than all other factors combined. So let's jump in and start with general anesthesia, and specifically uh, what we might call um, induction or maintenance meds, which typically fall into the categories of hypnotics, vapors, and gases. Adam, we use the phrase TIVA, T-I-V-A, Uh, What does that stand for, and why do we want it, and what are some common misconceptions about it? Well, TIVA stands for Total Intravenous Anesthesia. So 100% of the medications go through the IV, and nothing goes through the mass except oxygen and air. Sometimes anesthesiologists mix in a little gas, but then it's no longer TIVA. It actually becomes PIVA, Partial Intravenous Anesthesia. The problem with gas vapors like sevoflurane, desflurane, nitrous, et cetera, is that their use with motor evoked potentials, even in small amounts, significantly decreases the likelihood of being able to acquire reliable motor data at baseline, and it significantly increases the likelihood of a false alarm. These probabilities skyrocket in the context of comorbidities that affect spinal cord function. Also, when inhalational agents are used, we require much higher stimulation intensity to get motor evoked responses, which can cause excessive patient movement and increase the risk of a a patient injury like a tongue bite. The underlying reason for all these observations is that inhaled anesthetic agents suppress the lower motor neurons in the spinal cord, the depolarization of which is required to get a motor evoked potential. So you often hear groups say that they routinely get MEPs with half a mac of gas, and you can actually find references in the literature that say the same thing. However, when you examine the quality and consistency of that data, it's clear that the responses are usually smaller, more variable, and sometimes unobtainable. Right. So we always recommend that motor evoked potential monitoring is performed under total intravenous anesthesia. But we didn't just make this up. There's decades of research to back these recommendations. In fact, every guideline and recommendation published in the United States and internationally on motor evoked potentials states that total intravenous anesthesia is recommended. This usually consists of propofol plus a narcotic like fentanyl. We should mention that there is one drug that fits the bill of TIVA, but it's known to cause problems with motor evoked potentials, and this is Presidex or dexmedetomidine. So watch out for that. Adam, what are the recommendations for when we're not monitoring motor evoked potentials? In spine surgery, if we're not monitoring motor evoked potentials, then we're usually monitoring EMG and SSCPs. Uh, These pathways don't have a synapse in the spinal cord, 
So we can get away with half a mac of gas and sometimes even higher depending on the patient. Uh, Rich, what about ketamine? We often hear that that improves signals. Is that actually true? Yeah, great question. This comes up a lot. The answer is yes and no. Ketamine causes cortical excitation in the brain. So it may make things like EMG look more active and it may improve SSCPs. But the jury's out on motor evoked potentials. Some, some studies show improvement, some show no difference, and some studies show that ketamine actually makes motor signals worse. Again, this probably has to do with the difference between cortical excitation versus spinal cord inhibition or excitation. There could also be age differences that have yet to be teased out of the data. Um, so let's move on to motor uh, or neuromuscular blockade. Adam, this seems like a no-brainer. If you're monitoring EMG, you're testing pedicle screws, or you're monitoring motor evoke potentials, you want no neuromuscular blockade, right? Uh, yeah, it should be a no-brainer, but it's not uncommon for surgeons to do all the testing and complete or partial neuromuscular blockade. This means that the data you're collecting about the patient has very low sensitivity, and you cannot just monitor motor function with any accuracy if the neuromuscular junction is partially or completely blocked. So if you want to make sure that your data is accurate, ask the neuromonitoring or anesthesia team to ensure that the train of four is 4-4 four, four without fade or minimal fade. Right, and we recognize, of course, that it may be beneficial to maintain neuromuscular blockade or as some people say, keep the patient relaxed for portions of the procedure, especially to gain access to the spine. The best thing to do is ask anesthesiology to give little bits of neuromuscular blockade more often as opposed to giving large boluses periodically. Or there's this great new drug called Shigamidex, which quickly reverses non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockade. So just remember that while neuromuscular blockade is on board, the neuromonitoring team just can't monitor motor function of the spinal cord nerve roots or peripheral nerves. Adam, you and I have been practicing neurophysiology in the OR around Philadelphia for many years. In this environment, we've always had TIVA, total intravenous anesthesia, for cases involving motor evoked potentials. And we've always had complete absence of neuromuscular blockade during at-risk portions of cases involving EMG or motor evoked potentials. Do you want to comment on our experiences? Sure. Our experiences over the last couple of decades consist of monitoring many thousands of patients when anesthesia is optimized for neuromonitoring. But we've also had the benefit of seeing how some other regions of the country work when they turn on a little gas, for example, or test pedicle screws under partial neuromuscular blockade. Basically, in Philadelphia, working under TIVA, neither one of us has ever had an experience of not being able to acquire baseline motor evoked potentials unless the patient presents with pre-existing paralysis or profound weakness. When, when Just to leave a little room for error, we'll say we get a motor baseline in 99% of patients when TIVA is used. When uh, inhaled agents are used in the, in the literature, those numbers drop somewhere to around 60 to 75%, and that matches our observations when working all around the U.S. This is particularly true for the more proximal extremity muscle responses, for example, the deltoid and the bicep responses. Knowing that a C5 palsy is way more likely a negative outcome than a cord injury, having responses available to surveil the nerve roots is of utmost important importance to provide the most utility. Rich, you also mentioned earlier that TIVA normally consists of a, a hypnotic and a narcotic. However, we know that many facilities are adopting 
uh, enhanced recovery after surgery pathways or ARIS pathways. When should the surgeon know, uh, what should the surgeon know about ARIS for cases where neuromonitoring is used? Sure. So ARIS and neuromonitoring, it's all about the proposed multimodal analgesia plan. Uh, we've already discussed some drugs commonly reported to be included for use in ARIS pathways, such as Presidex and ketamine, so we have to be aware of those. But depending on what is selected, the combination of, of drugs may be detrimental, neutral, or beneficial to obtaining quality neuromonitoring data. If ARIS will be included for spine cases where monitoring is utilized, it would be ideal to include the neuromonitoring team in those discussions so everybody's on the same page. Yeah, 100% agreed. So the, the take-home message is if you want to optimize the accuracy of the neural monitoring, particularly when motor evoked potentials are monitored, make sure to use total intravenous anesthesia with no vapors or no nitrous and be cautious with the Presidex. When it comes to neuromuscular blockade, it's okay to relax the patient, but understand that the neuromonitoring team can't monitor accurately when the relaxant is on board. You'll have to let it wear off or reverse it in order to monitor motor function. Thanks for listening. Thanks.